Welcome to the Beltway Outsiders Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. You can find my weekly columns at the Conservative Institute or get my Friday newsletter in your email inbox each week by signing up at thebeltwayoutsiders.com. This past week, I wrote about the New York Times Kavanaugh story, both in the Outsider Perspective, which is the newsletter, and also in a column for the Conservative Institute. And I also wrote about a comparison between Brexit and America when it comes to how the elites in both countries are dealing with democratic norms and how they're overriding actual democratic norms in order to protect their own personal power. So you can get all that at thebeltwayoutsiders.com if you sign up. This podcast is powered by Podcast One, who advertises on the front end as well as during the breaks. I have those breaks scheduled, and depending on how you listen to this or when do you listen to this, those ads may come through. Sometimes they don't, so if you just hear a quick uh, edit or anything, that's where the breaks are supposed to be. And if you hear nothing at all, just ignore it. If you'd like to advertise on this podcast, feel free to reach out to me. The contact information for that, as well as all the sign-up links for everything that I've mentioned so far, can be found in the show notes. Make sure to subscribe and review on this podcast. You can find us in iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Overcast, and others. Five-star reviews help us stand out in the podcast algorithms and help others find this. Your support is the lifeblood of podcasts like this one, and I thank you for your support. This week, I'm going to cover a quick story about uh, Elizabeth Warren and how the media is gushing over her. There's a column in the Washington Post I'm going to hit real quick before moving on to the big story of the week, which is the whistleblower account regarding with Joe Biden and Donald Trump. And then after that, I'm going to go back into the Kavanaugh story and share some audio clips of some interviews with some journalists who have been talking to various outlets about their due story, and we're going to dive into that story again and kind of talk through some of their defenses and how they don't really work with what we've learned so far and what we know about what happened in Kavanaugh's story. So, I'm going to hit this first story, and this is a real one. I printed it off so I could look at it just because it was it was incredible to see that this was actually written in a newspaper. So this was written in the Washington Post in the history section covering Elizabeth Warren and her many photo op opportunities that she has with her fans. And the title of this is Frederick Douglass Photos Smash Stereotypes. Could Elizabeth Warren's Selfies Do the Same? Frederick Douglass photos smash stereotypes. Could Elizabeth Warren selfies do the same? That is a crazy headline, if I've ever heard one in my life. And it's a very lengthy essay written here by a journalist who's talking about Elizabeth Warren and her so-called selfie lines. You can't see it, but I'm making air quotation marks. And all of her... Fans will line up and get in this line and she'll take any photo you want. There was, I think, one campaign where she was standing outside in this place for four and a half hours just taking picture after picture after picture of their fans. As far as a campaign tactic, it's brilliant because you get all these little individual viral hits. But it's not Frederick Douglass. I mean, let's be honest. We could line every single politician in America up, all in a row, Warren included, 
Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, it doesn't matter. You can line them all up. They wouldn't amount to one single Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass, if you need a quick history refresher, is one of the most famous freed slaves in the 1800s. His autobiography that he wrote of himself is a classic in all of American just literature, nonfiction, period. Everyone should read it. And he's one of the greatest non-elected statesmen we've ever had. So he's Elizabeth Warren's selfie line that she so-called. It's just there's nothing that can compare to what Frederick Douglass was, and it's an insulting comparison for any history professor to do that. So that, that's the first thing. The second thing that is that these this is these are not selfies. As a millennial, this this is insulting to hear that this is a selfie line. It's not. It's just an improvised photo booth that her campaign has rigged together. Like I said, it's a brilliant campaign tactic, but this is not a selfie line. She's not sitting there taking your phone and taking selfies with you. They're taking real photos like it was a photo booth. It's not a selfie line. The other thing that's kind of telling about this, it's written in the Washington Post, is that these are both two white progressive women who are writing this. And, well, one progressive white woman who who wrote it, another one who made it viral on Twitter. And it's just this same thing. that You see it with Warren when she claimed um, Native American heritage, and you see it with these types of things where these certain type of elite progressive class thinks that they can claim the slavery narrative or the or just the civil rights thing that they have no connection to whatsoever, that it's unique to African Americans in history, and they're trying to take it and apply it to modern politicians and modern things. And it just, it's its not right. It's kind of disgusting, and it's, it's crazy. I was happy to see this piece was getting ratioed, as they say on Twitter, um, just because th- this is not something that should be taken seriously or stuck in a major newspaper. And it would, I guess you want to call this the thing that annoyed me most this week. This would be it. So the headline again is Frederick Douglass photos smashed stereotypes. Could Elizabeth Warren selfies do the same? The answer to that is no. They're not going to do anything, and I'm not going to engage with that author at all anymore. So that brings us to the real news that's happening this week. And that is this whistleblower story involving Donald Trump, Joe Biden, Joe Biden's son, and Ukraine. And it's kind of, this has the potential to be the new Trump-Russia story in the news cycle. I haven't written about it yet because there's still so many unknowns. You're trying to figure out exactly what happened, what's in this report, who's, who wrote it. There's just a lot of unanswered questions. There's a lot of quirky legal nuances, too, that you kind of have to understand in order to have a full appreciation of what's happening here. But if you want to back up and go with the 30,000-foot view, it's that we have a person in the intelligence community, uh, some kind of officer, probably in the White House, and they filed a whistleblower complaint and accused someone in the White House of abusing or misusing U.S. intelligence power in relation to, in this case, it seems like it's the Ukraine. So the specifics of the story that we believe 
and we no one's seen this whistleblower report yet. I'm recording late Saturday, and nothing has come out yet. That could change Sunday or Monday, whenever you're listening to this. But as of right now, I don't have this report. But anyway, they've accused an abuse of power and an abuse of intelligence uh, community resources in communicating with this foreign entity, in this case, the Ukraine. So the way this works, in a very abbreviated nutshell, is that in the intelligence community, you can file these whistleblower complaints. I'll get into more about how that relates to the White House here in a little bit. But for now, you can file these whistleblower complaints about something bad that's happened within the intelligence establishment of the United States. What's supposed to happen is the White House investigates it and decides whether or not it is a legitimate complaint or not. And then they can send that on to Congress if they believe that the threat in this uh, whistleblower account is credible enough. So that's kind of an overview of how it all happens. When you start digging in to um, the legal part of it and the timeline, everything gets a little screwy. Um, I linked a piece in the show notes for this for uh, this episode to a column in the week by Peter Weber, and he did a great job of walking through the timeline of what we know so far. You start on May 10th, where Rudy Giuliani, Trump's lawyer, calls off a trip to Ukraine one day after saying he would be meddling in an investigation and giving Ukraine's new government reasons why they shouldn't stop it because that information will be very, very helpful to his client. He apparently lobbies Ukraine via back channels over the summer. So that starts in May 10th of this year and moves forward. Then you get to July 25th, Trump and Zelensky talk on the phone. And Trump, according to Ukraine's readout of the call, signaled Ukraine should complete investigation of corruption cases, which inhibited the interaction between Ukraine and the USA. There's some quotes in there. So that happens in July. And then when this really picks up is at the end of August. And so on August 28th, Politico reported that Trump had frozen $250 million in Ukraine's security aid, and Congress didn't know why. So that's a big point there. So you kind of have to hold that in your mind. So there's $250 million that get frozen at the end of August. On September 1st, Vice President Mike Pence meets with uh, President Zelensky in Poland. Zelensky is the president of Ukraine. And he's asked about Biden and the frozen funds the next day. So there's apparently some discussion of what's happened with these frozen funds on September 1st. On September 9th, the House Foreign Affairs Intelligence and Oversight Committees announced an investigation into whether or not Donald Trump and Rudy Giuliani have increased pressure on the Ukrainian government and its justice system in service of President Trump's re-election campaign. And they asked for a transcript of of Trump's July 25th call and any relevant documents. That's on the 9th. And so what they're trying to do here is they're trying to see whether or not uh, Trump is using this $250 million in aid as a way to get 
an investigation out of the Ukraine. So basically using it to get something out of Ukraine, sort of a quid pro quo scenario. On September 10th, Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff writes Acting Director of National Intelligence Joseph McGuire to ask about the whistleblower complaint. So at this point, we have the whistleblower complaint out. Schiff has learned about it, and he's asking the White House about it. And on September 11th, the White House releases military aid to Ukraine with no explanation. So now the $250 million is given to them, and nobody knows why it was delayed at all. And then on September 19th, so we're up to the modern moment here, Ukraine is reported to be a focus of the whistleblower's complaint. Rudy Giuliani goes on CNN and says he has pressed Ukraine's government to investigate Joe Biden. He Then he suggests on Twitter that Trump should push Ukraine to investigate Biden. And as of Friday of this past week, the Trump administration was refusing to turn over the details of the whistleblower complaint. And the... Um, Democrats in the House were threatening to sue, saying that there was manipulation in the system. So that's kind of a timeline of events. So the big thing here is that there's a question of whether or not there's a quid pro quo, whether or not, one, whether Ukraine is investigating Biden, and if they did, whether or not they did so at the direction of Donald Trump in his efforts to dig up dirt on Biden or Biden's family and whether or not that was what triggered the $250 million in aid. We don't know exactly what or how that, what happened from that timeline, and so that's where the next big story in this comes in, which is from the Wall Street Journal. And they reported over the weekend that during one of those calls, Trump repeatedly pressed Ukraine president to investigate Biden's son. And then this was written on September 21st. And in a July phone call, probably the 25th, that we mentioned just a second ago, Trump repeatedly pressured the president of the Ukraine to investigate Joe Biden's son, urging him about eight times to work with Rudy Giuliani on a probe that could hamper Mr. Trump's potential 2020 opponent. So that's the first paragraph. In there, so you have eight times, allegedly, that Trump pressured Ukraine to investigate Joe Biden's son in an effort to try to get dirt on him for the 2020 campaign. Because all assumptions are right now is that Joe Biden's going to be the eventual 2020 nominee. Now, you've heard me talk for weeks now about whether or not Biden will actually make that or not. But regardless, the White House is proceeding right now as if Biden is the front runner. And they're looking for opposition research, effectively. They're looking for ways to hit Biden negatively. They see an avenue here where they can hit him, and so they're going forward with that. So the question out of this, what makes the Wall Street Journal report uh, different from what all the previous reporting had done from the Washington Post, the New York Times, and others, is that the Journal reported that there was no quid pro quo Basically, they said that the $250 million was not tied to Trump's demands. So this was just been Trump demanding something, but not tying the $250 million in, in aid to Ukraine, not tying any conditions to that, or not tying these specific conditions to that. So that could potentially take out the quid pro quo allegation. 
But regardless, everyone's going to be asking, why was Trump doing this? Was this an abuse of power? And what, if anything, is there regarding Biden in this? I mean, that that's the other question that you have to ask here. But the legal part where all this comes in, since this is, the details are changing with each big story that comes out, uh, this could, I mean, they could change by the time you listen to this. What won't change is the interesting legal angle to this entire thing. Lawfare put out an article uh, by Robert S. Litt, and he is the former general counsel to the office of the director of national intelligence under Barack Obama. So if this were happening under the Obama administration, Robert Litt would be the one who would be dealing with all this and getting the correct legal arguments together and figuring out what the administration would be doing. So he's been looking over all of this, and he wrote some special uh, pieces for Lawfare, which is a national security website, and they focus on basically every aspect of national security, how the military interacts with the law, and what to think about all of of those things. And when he was looking at this second wave of information coming out of the White House, he, not strongly, but did suggest that the White House had a point here that the whistleblower complaint should not be revealed to Congress because it involved the communications between the president and another foreign leader, which are usually going to be something that's going to be covered by a White House privilege. He writes, A claim that the president's communication with foreign leaders should be protected by privilege is not a frivolous claim. When Congress sought to obtain memoranda of Trump's conversations with Russian President Vladimir Putin, White House counsel Pat uh, Cipollone cited a long history going back to George Washington of presidents declining to reveal such communications. The extent of such a privilege and in particular whether it would protect communications that might constitute bribery, are untested. But if the White House asserted such a privilege, the ODNI would be bound to honor it. So effectively, if the White House asserts a privilege over this whistleblower complaint, they would have the legal authority to do so and would be able to deny Congress the ability to look in here because it involves Trump talking to a foreign leader, which has long been protected uh, by privilege and law. It's something that's, like he said, it's not tested primarily because this is not something that's usually requested. It's something, if it's Congress gets it, it's something because the White House has handed it out. And in situations like this that might involve a negotiation, they would be strictly classified or known only to very select members of con- members of Congress. And so that's the interesting wrinkle here. There are three strands here that you have to track if you're, when you're trying to understand this story. The first is, was a whistleblower listening in on the president and his conversations with a foreign leader, was that legal? We don't know who the whistleblower was. We don't know how they got the information that they had. Uh, I mean, frankly, we, we just don't know anything. The allegations are is that it involved these phone calls, but we haven't seen it. And given that the the White House is blocking 
any access to these files, we know that it probably does involve this or it involves Trump or some other high-level ranking official who was doing these negotiations, which would be likely outside the purview of the intelligence community. They shouldn't be listening in and filing whistleblower complaints on what the president is talking to with foreign leaders. That's just outside of the bounds. So that's the first thing. There's some interesting legal arguments there, and as we learn more about it, those will become clearer. The second thing you have to look at is, was Trump demanding from, was Donald Trump, when he demanded Ukraine investigate Biden, was this an abuse of power? And was there any quid pro quo involved? Was the $250 million involved? Was he trying to tie an investigation and digging up dirt into Joe Biden to this $250 million or not? If that's an abuse of power, and more information comes out on that, this wouldn't be a situation where we would need another independent counsel. It would just have to go to Congress. All the committees that they need, they have all the tools they need to investigate the executive branch on this front. So it wouldn't be another Robert Mueller situation. This would be, if Congress believes there's something in, in wrong happening here, they have to be the ones to initiate and investigate it themselves. So that's going to be the second thing of this. Did Trump abuse his power in this situation? If he did, they could certainly make an argument on impeachment. I don't think that they will in the end because they don't have the votes to do impeachment on anything that they've had so far, and there's an election coming up, and Democrats widely believe if they move towards an impeachment on any specific issue, that they will lose the White House and probably seats in the House, too. So impeachment's off the, off, um, it's off all the list right now. But investigating Trump on a story like this could go on for a while. And in fact, I wouldn't be shocked if Democrats tried to drag this out for as long as possible in the House. The thing to watch here on the investigation front is to watch what the Senate does. Uh, the Senate involved, one of the senators involved, that is Democrat Mark Warner out of Virginia, and he is far less bombastic than his Democratic colleagues in the House. If he and some of the others on the and Republicans in the Senate side start acting like this is a big deal and it's crazy, and they start acting like the House members, then it's probably more serious than than it seems right now. But if they don't, and I haven't seen them act in any way that indicates this is super crazy or super bad, they're still acting just like they're going to go through a typical investigation on the Senate side. That seems to suggest that it's not quite as hair on fire running around like chickens with your head cut off. It's not quite that bad like the House Democrats are acting. And then finally, the third thing here is, did Joe Biden or his son do anything wrong and worth investigating in Ukraine? That's the other thing here. I mean, there is a scenario where every last single person here, the whistleblower, Donald Trump, and Joe Biden, could all be caught doing something wrong and that all legitimately need investigation or some form of punishment for what they did. That's that's not outside the question here. Literally every last single person could have dirt on their hands. So all of that's in play. That's an overview of that story and what's happening. It's mired in a lot of complexity because you have some really, really fine-tuned and minute areas of law that are involved with this. And also, there's just gray areas in what happened with the facts. I expect over the next week we'll learn a lot more about what happened, but the legal part of it won't change. And certainly the 
part where Congress has to investigate won't change. So before we end up wrap up this story, and when I come back after the break, we're going to go back into the Kavanaugh thing, and I'm going to share some clips with you from this past week with the journalist who wrote this book and new book about Kavanaugh and what they've had to say on various points. The media's Sharpie story is how I summed up in both the newsletter this past week and in columns about what this new Kavanaugh story is. And if you don't remember the Sharpie story, I'll give you a quick refresher. It's the story where Donald Trump had the old hurricane track of Hurricane Dorian up, and he had taken a Sharpie and drawn an extra part of the cone out that included parts of upper parts of Florida and Alabama, just trying to prove one of his tweets right where he had said that Alabama was in the dangerous part of the track of this storm. And he wanted to prove that his tweets and his statements were right, so he drew that Sharpie. It was obviously a lie. It, that track, that cone, was never put out by the National Weather Service or the Hurricane Center or anybody. It was put by there, allegedly, from what it sounded in the reports, by Trump himself. And he refused to back down. He refused to admit that he lied. He refused to admit that he had done anything with the Sharpie. And the media went crazy trying to prove that he had done something. It was a really crazy story that lasted 10 to 14 days. And that was much longer than anybody anticipated it going just because it was an easy story for him to report on and it was an easy story for him to fight them on. That's kind of what's happening here with the Kavanaugh story. We have a pretty good idea of what happened, and what they're doing is they're taking what we already know and taking a Sharpie and drawing in a new area saying, hey, this is what's actually, this is this other area over here, we also need to be concerned about that. And so this new fake cone that they've drawn out, like the hurricane track, that's what's causing all these Democrats to come out now and say, oh, well, if this happened, we definitely need to impeach Kavanaugh. That definitely has to happen, and he needs to be removed. And we need to investigate him and investigate everything else that happened during those hearings. Investigate, 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 and do everything we can to invalidate him and invalidate the court in the process. But what we've learned as we've looked through this book, as we've looked through what they've alleged, they have, these two authors for the New York Times had nothing new to offer. There were no new, true new allegations that deserved any credence by anybody looking at it. In fact, the book evidence that they had went the opposite way. It proved one of the stories that came out was that Leland Kaiser, Christine Blasey Ford's friend, who said she was at who Ford said was at the event with her where Kavanaugh pushed himself on her, she said she didn't believe the story that Ford told. In fact she was being pressured to lie about what happened. That was the big step, the actual real story. And I'm going to show a clip here in a second of them talking about that. But that's the real story that happened here. And that's not what the New York Times chose to report. They chose to go with new allegations that involved Brett Kavanaugh that deserved to be investigated and that caused everyone to light their hair on fire. And so because they didn't have anything to offer new here, when reporters started digging into the story itself and digging into these reporters, they found that not only was there nothing, the fact that the Times was pushing something when there was nothing was 
causing the entire New York Times newsroom to be in disarray. Vanity Fair reported that turmoil had engulfed the Times over this Kavanaugh debacle. The reporter who wrote the story said that he had sources that said that the two reporters initially pitched their reporting to the news side of the newspaper, but top editors ultimately felt that there wasn't enough juice to warrant a story there, punting the scoop to the Sunday review section. And the Sunday review section is the opinion book review section, so it wasn't front page news. They stuck it in an opinion section, which tells you what they thought about the allegations in this by the reporters. Furthermore, when he went in and started poking around in the and asking people at the Times, off the record, what they thought, he said people familiar with how things went down told him that the two reporters initially pitched their story to the news side, but the top editors told him, again, that there, there wasn't enough to warrant a first-page treatment, which was the thing that many lefties, as he, as he says, were salivating for. Instead, they were told they could pitch it to the opinion side, which is entirely depend, independent from the news department, and he never got clarity on what happened there. And then there's this perspective, he says. The irony is that this book is not an attack on Kavanaugh. It's very balanced. If people actually read the book, they'll see it's very fair and meticulous and will report it. Liberals are not going to be satisfied. This is not an impeach Kavanaugh book. That's what they heard from Vanity Fair, but that's the exact opposite of what the New York Times led with. They led with it in a way to get that impeachment push from Democratic candidates, to get them to attack Kavanaugh in ways that implied that he was a guilty party. So we're going to set this clip up here, and this first part are the two journalists for the New York Times talking to The Hill TV and describing this first instance of Leland Kaiser and the pressure campaign on her to lie about the Kavanaugh allegations during the Christine Blasey Ford testimony back during the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings. But one of the things you didn't mention there is that Leland Kaiser, in your book, who was supposedly the one who drove her home, says that she doesn't think that it happened and that there was a smear and pressure campaign against her and by her own friends in order to corroborate Christine Blasey Ford's allegation. That's right, and yeah. I'm, so, I'm so glad you brought that up because I think that's one of the big revelations of our book. So Leland Kaiser, who was the friend who was alleged to be at the party, and uh, the only other girl allegedly there, and by all accounts a very good friend of Ford's and a person who dated Mark Judge, um, told us that she doesn't have confidence in the story. Now, I'll break it down. She has consistently said she doesn't remember what happened. Her lawyer said that, she said that. On the margin of, you know, whether she finds it believable, last year she said, Ford is my friend, was my friend at the time, and I believe her. Subsequently, and we explain all this in our book with the first on-the-record interview with her that anybody's mm -hmm. had, um, she testified, or, or rather gave a, an interview to the FBI um, and said what she could remember, if anything, about those times and kind of the circumstances, but not remembering the event. Days later, she studied pictures of Brett Kavanaugh from when he was young. She looked at maps of the area. She rested up, and she thought, you know, I'm bothered by this. I don't have confidence in this. I don't remember him 
from that time. Mm -hmm. I do remember Judge. I obviously remember Chrissy. Mm -hmm. um, I don't remember gatherings like that. I don't think I would have been at the Columbia Country Club on a yeah. day like that. So there were a number of things that made her question it, Yeah. Um, well, although she still doesn't remember for sure. So that's the testimony of the journalist talking about Leland Kaiser and what she doesn't remember. Now you'll notice in that interview, when you think back through it, the question was about the smear campaign and about her being pressured to not to testify that and support Blasey Ford's testimony. And that's in their book that she she says this, that she was pressured to lie and defend Ford's testimony and that she chose not to. And now she's saying in this first interview that they had that she doesn't have any confidence in the story that Ford is telling. But the reporters in that interview, what they do is they twist it and they go into her not having confidence in anything. So they're saying that effectively that even though the key witness here to what happened, even though that witness is saying that it didn't happen now, that we should just discount that because she doesn't have a good memory of that event. But they say in their book that they trust Ford's testimony. That's just, that's them picking a side in this situation and saying, we believe this, we're going to discount this other witness, the key witness that was there, and we're going to drive this one narrative all the way through. And so that's an instance of, and a reason why this piece got tossed into the opinion section of the paper and not in the news section because they have this big scoop here and they're not leading with that. They're leading with all of these other vague allegations. And the thing that this piece hinges on that they they announced is that there were seven other people who had heard about these allegations and one in particular, a guy named Max Steer. And in this next clip, you'll hear they talk about Max Steer and whether or not he had a valid allegation here or whether or not he had a partisan reason for bringing this up, even though no one else involved, literally the women involved and no one else remembers what happened. He is just the one bringing it up, not the alleged victim, not any of the other women in the story. It's just him. So here's this clip. The, the person who allegedly saw this incident, Mr. Max Steyer, right. as I understand it, he was on the opposing team from Kavanaugh during the Clinton impeachment, and his wife was denied a federal judgeship by the GOP. Did you include that information in your book? I mean, that seems like pretty clear evidence of a vendetta against Brett Kavanaugh. You know, we, we yeah. didn't include it in the book. We do talk about what he's been doing for most of his career, you don't which think is that's germane. partisan well, I, I mean, mean, for somebody you know, to accuse somebody of like this, and, which, and, and a victim does not, reckon, does not even remember this incident, you don't think that that is a germane detail? Do you think it's germane that Brett Kavanaugh wrote um, the Star Report? Um, yes, absolutely. Going after absolutely, and he was grilled for that when he was here in his convenience. Except that he, he maintained his, his that he's a judge now, and he's yep. made fair decisions, and it wasn't fair to think of him completely as a partisan person with a partisan agenda just because he worked for Star and just mm -hmm. because he worked for George Bush. I think that is germane. He was hit yeah. for but it. But this okay? history goes yeah. back to the 1990s. Max Steyer is a central figure in Michael Lewis's book, The Fifth Risk, sure. which is also a great. Read. Yeah. And 
it's all about Max Steyer's good governance effort, his nonpartisan effort. If you ask around Washington, as I'm sure you have, have. he's a very well-respected guy On both who sides deals of the with aisle. both sides of the aisle. Well-respected guy, right? I'm he did not want this to become politicized. This is why he privately went to senators and the FBI and tried to have his story be heard. That's right. And, and if he had an agenda. Why didn't he do it during the hearings when he could have blown well, it up? Well, he did do it during the well, hearings. Let, and let he me went ask to though. These privately, and yeah. he was ignored. He had no well, interest in going to the press because they didn't think that it was germane. But they didn't even investigate it. Yeah. So there you have this second clip of them talking about Max Steyer. And you'll notice the question here. Did they include the information in their book about who Max Steyer was and whether or not he had this potential partisan issue that could cloud his reasoning for bringing up these allegations? And though they never say it, they don't bring that up. They don't include it as part of their biased witnesses. So you have them you know, discounting Leland Kaiser's account and saying, well, she's just not, she's not, um, she doesn't have confidence in her account, so we can ignore her in order to believe Ford. But in this other situation, they're saying, well, we can bring in Steyer and ignore any possible reason for him to have had a biased, a biased uh, belief and a biased reason for saying something against Kavanaugh. They bring up all of his nonpartisan things, but he's involved with the Clintons during the impeachment hearings. And so they're trying to have it both ways here. They're ignoring the partisanship of Max Steyer, and they're ignoring this partisan smearing campaign against Leland Kaiser in order to pursue these different things. They believe Ford, despite contrary evidence and despite clear partisan motivation here. They say that Steyer didn't have a partisan motivation, and they say also that that Ford didn't have a partisan motivation. But we know that's not true. And we know that's not true because Ford's own lawyers said this. This will be the last clip here, but it's a clip of Ford's lawyers talking in a sitting in a university, talking about one of her motivations for bringing up these allegations at the hearings regarding Kavanaugh. Aftermath of these hearings, I believe that Christine's testimony brought about more good than the harm misogynist Republicans caused by allowing Kavanaugh on the court. We were going to have a conservative. Elections have consequences. But he will always have an asterisk next to his name. When he takes a scalpel to Roe v. Wade, we will know who he is, we know his character, and we know what motivates him. And that is important. It is important that we know and that was part of what motivated Christine. So that's the clip there of her lawyer describing one of her motivations, which is to put an asterisk next to Kavanaugh's name and to besmirch him and to attack him and the validity of anything he has to say. We've seen a similar line of attack coming out from Democratic operatives who've said that Anything that Clarence Thomas says and anything that Clamor- that Kavanaugh say are colored by the fact that they were, quote-unquote, credibly accused of sexual assault. So what they're laying the groundwork here is to delegitimize any opinions that these judges come out with that they disagree with. So it's a way for them to delegitimize the court, delegitimize opinions, and a- attack politically anything they don't like. Matthew Cottonetti, 
editor-in-chief of the Washington Free Beacon had a great column on this. He wrote, All of the Kavanaugh coverage for the last year has been intended to undermine his confirmation and the subsequent rulings and lay the predicate for a structural reform of the U.S. judiciary if the Democrats win the presidency in the Senate. The disastrous rollout of this latest smear has had the ironic effect of highlighting the weakness of the original charges against him. Author Ryan Loveless undercovered footage of Christine Blasey Ford's attorney, Deborah Katz, saying that the desire to put an asterisk next to Kavanaugh's decisions motivated her client to come forward. Authors Molly Hemingway and Carrie Severino report that Blasey Ford's friend, Leland Kayser, didn't believe her story and does not recall meeting Kavanaugh. Blasey Ford's father, who, along with Blasey Ford's mother, was noticeably absent from last year's hearing, is reported to support Kavanaugh. There is not a single cooperating witness to Blasey Ford's account, and the seven witnesses to Deborah Ramirez's story are less than what they seem. The Kavanaugh controversy is not, as one reporter for the Washington Post described it, a journalistic mishap. It is a case of Democratic activists and lawmakers using journalists precisely as intended, as instruments of a political agenda. Democrats are much more aware than Republicans that the very survival of their party depends on the maintenance of the living Constitution as opposed to the Constitution as written and subsequently amended. The courts have been the Democrats' backstop. If Donald Trump transforms them, liberals would have to reckon with the voting public. Things could get ugly. And that's where we are with this Kavanaugh thing. Democrats are trying again and again to discredit the court as an institution, the court as in all of its decisions, and they're laying the groundwork to attack the eventual overturn of Roe v. Wade and any other decisions that they don't like. That's where we are. So as you watch this story develop and you watch decisions come out over the next couple of years, watch for this attack to come back. They'll be making the same allegations again, again, and again in order to discredit the court as an institution. This isn't going anywhere, and they're going to use it as a battering ram to attack everything they don't like and to justify their attempts to reshape the judiciary themselves, whether that's through court packing or anything else. They'll say that they're justified because of what's happened here. That'll do it for today's show. Questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to reach out to me in the contact information for the show notes or reach out to me on Twitter at DevonCI. Look for my next column to come out on Monday at the Conservative Institute, and make sure to sign up for the newsletter. You'll get all my columns and other writing in your inbox at the end of each week on Friday morning. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it a part of your day. If you liked and enjoyed it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews to help us stand out in the rankings. I hope you tune in again, but until next time, I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week, and I'll see you guys in the next episode.